Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this final uh, podcast on Anselm of Canterbury, I want to look at his uh, doctrine of divine satisfaction or his atonement theory. And what I'm saying about his atonement theory is that it's connected with the rest of his project. That is, that why God became man seeks to do for the atonement what the monologion and the proslogion did for God's existence. Anselm is going to set forth the reason why God became man and died on the cross, heavy emphasis there on reason, in such a way that it's irresistible, it's necessary, like the ontological argument, that a non-believer, the role of Boso in this dialogue, would be convinced of its truth inevitably. So he will not appeal to the authority of Scripture or even the explanation of Scripture, though the, the Scripture may be the background that is there, but he will use pure reason to answer the question that he poses, by what logic or necessity did God become man and by his death, as we believe and profess, restore life to the world. And again, logic, necessity, and so he's going to create the same closed system that he does in the ontological argument, that he does in the cosmological argument. He's going to back us into a corner. He will do this, I'll come to it here in a bit, but the way that he will do it is make the atonement apply to a specified number, a quantifiable number. It doesn't matter how big the number or how small the number. Later, Calvin will take up the notion of a limited atonement. I think it's from a similar sort of logic. That is, for this system to be a closed system in which we can capture a necessary meaning for the death of Christ, as with the ontological argument, it has to in some way be of a kind of mathematical necessity. He says then that sin exists not as an action or a work or a thought, but sin is in the will. And we've seen this in his discussion in both the monologion and proslogion, that the will's self-relation to the self. That is, that we cannot rightly remember who we are, that we cannot, in some tautologous way, be self-identical with ourselves. That is, pass beyond a plurality of words into a singularity, a single word. He says it's the will that has a substantial existence. That is, that outward existing things, in some way, are on a different ontological order. The will, then, has an existence which these outward works and actions are in themselves nothing, but the will is something. And of course, what he's building here is that it's a something on the order of God himself. I've recently been doing Corinthians. Paul says that in dealing with the Corinthians, that the Corinthians say the idol is nothing and God is something. That is, they seem to be doing a very similar thing, and it's just what people always do in the history of thought, they would make the something over and against the nothing. This is what Hegel does. This is there in Heidegger. But it's just what people always do, that in some way you have a comparative difference, an absolute difference between something and nothing. 
I believe this is Anselm's project throughout. Now, the grand tragedy, of course, is that he is going to use this dialectic, what will become to be called the dialectic, as the reason for the death of Christ. What he's saying is we need Christ to in some way complete the dialectic, to complete the comparison, so that when what is nothing is taken up into the will, this can be identified with injustice. This can be identified with evil. And so sin takes on an actual existence only as an absence in the will. In this way, then, one takes honor from God, the honor that is due him. And so the whole economy is paying back for this absence, this nothingness, this evil, as if this is in some way subtracted from God's honor. This is privation theory, the argument that we understand that evil is nothing, but he also will say an injustice is nothing. But the absence of the justice that ought to be there, it is the absence of that, and so evil is nothing but this absence of the good that ought to be there, And the good, then, is, as he's demonstrated, he's shown us how this goodness works. It is something that manifests itself in pure reason. It manifests itself in giving expression to the self. To strive to give, therefore, I'm quoting from, actually, this is from the Monologion, to give, therefore, expression to this impressed image, to strive to actualize by an act of will this nature's potential, such above all is in consequence the debt that rational creation owes its creator. How will it be able to to pay this debt? How will man be able to complete this thought? Well, he's going to be able to do it through the work of Christ. That is, that Christ is going to enable him to become self-identical. It's going to be able to bring him back into pure reason. So for Anselm and later for Descartes, the will is the site of sin and salvation so that one can actualize himself through an act of the will. One is able to fuse memory and remembrance into the unbreakable bond of love. This is a kind of closed category. Love here, he has a very special definition for. We might say that this unbreakable bond of love is one is able to become one's own trinity. And of course, I think this is a a fallacious use of both Augustine, but certainly of the picture of what a person is, that one is able to bridge the gap in the will. And this is the work of Christ. This is why Christ died. Salvation then would aim at closing the gap in the will so that we can properly will ourselves. We can properly arrive at the essence of the self in our thought, in our right remembrance of the thought. And so sin creates this absence, which is the force, the will is the force that would give expression to the impressed image. That is, how do we bear the image of God? We bear it through our will. Will is the vital force that would take the basic equipment of the rational self and if restored to its propter rectitude, could preserve a subject fully present to itself or able to completely remember itself. By seeking to answer the question under these terms, Anselm is calling into play, quote, the necessities of reason that have been described, this is his whole system, is really a part of a closed system. 
and he's not going to disrupt this system, which he can call law, he does call it law, that the death of Christ is required through the law, but what he means by the law is the law of reason or the law of honor. Christ's death will be called upon to support the system, not to displace the system. The salvation of the system is itself law-bound. Law is the law of reason, which he's demonstrated, I think, in the ontological argument. This already, I hope that we can see, is not a deliverance out of the requirements of the law, but is a very specific meaning to the fulfillment of the law. That is, it keeps the law up and running. Guilt and debt arise, according to Anselm, from a missing presence in the will. That is, we're guilty and we owe a debt because of a lack of self-presence. But the presumption of a missing presence, that, that is that we're not fully present to ourselves, again, think here of Derrida's project that kind of already, I think, we're describing human desire, and desire is desire for self-presence, and what I would say about that desire is it's misdirected, it's already deceived, it gives then final legitimacy to this desire. Desire produces the need and notion rather than the need producing the desire of a missing absolute. That is that desire keeps itself alive. You know, what this is Lacan's point. What does desire desire? It desires itself. This is the life force. And so Anselm's his reason functions to generate the notion of a lack as what has gone missing and the pursuit of that thing that is missing. And this is the foundation of his reason. It's there in, throughout his project. And this means that what is lacking is not really what drives the system, but rather the system is driven. It needs this lack. Uh, the desire for an absolute reason or an absolute self creates the need for this missing absolute. And of course, the, what I'm saying here is that the notion of absolutizing the self or giving an essence to the self on the order that he's doing, or to imagine that there is a kind of reified, innately immortal soul within us, it's very Platonic, it's very Greek, but it's not very Christian. So if desire is read in terms of the will, it can be said that the will's will to will, it becomes tautologous. This is what Derrida, you know, what is the law? Well, the law is the law. It's its own thing. The king who embodies the law can identify completely with the law. That is, it folds in upon itself. An absolute willing creates or generates the missing word, the missing link that keeps the system up and going. There's a wonderful children's book that describes the missing piece. In a sense, that's what's captured here. That's the Lacanian system. The missing piece keeps the system up and running. I think Anselm's entire system depends upon the missing piece. The foundational nature of Anselm's theology and by foundationalism, think here of Descartes' foundation, that we're going to build an entire system on the self. I believe this is already here in Anselm. It is uh, apparent in his attempt to ground rationality in the self, in reason, in ethics, in law. And so what all of these realms have in common is they are grounded in a self-authorizing tautology the tautology of self. How are you self-identical? 
I am me, and you bring those two things together. If you think of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. The way that you would resolve that tension is to, in some way, bring the two eyes together. The tautology of ethics, the will to justice, is justice. Anselm's going to use this language. They might then give rise to the tautologist performance of the law. What is the law? Well, the law is itself. The law is the law. The need then for a continual performance, a judging of a self-authorizing rationality in order to attain the entity of the self as a mode of salvation, this places theology in the realm of law. So what we're doing in our picture of divine satisfaction is the same project as with the rational arguments. It is a rational argument. He attaches his theology to medieval law, but actually I think sometimes we may overemphasize the nature of law and all of that. Yes, it's important, the role of honor, that's a part of it, but in a sense any law would have done justice. Uh, He's dealing throughout with what he takes to be a self-evident or self-authorizing realm, maybe just call it raw power. And this can ultimately be reduced to the necessity that he's calling law. So he doesn't, he himself identifies it with power, necessity, along with will, and these are his proper subject. And of course, these are all, these necessary realms are all interlocking will, law. And so he says it is essential to have an understanding of power and necessity and will and certain other things, and that's what he's laying out, which are so constituted that no one of them can be fully considered without the others. His doctrine of divine satisfaction is going to show how each of these is interlocked and interchanging system. There is a kind of, you know, when we think of the death of Christ and we think of its universality, This is a good way to get at its universality if you're not concerned with Scripture or with the historical reality of Christ. If you just want to do a pure philosophical understanding, this is, I think, what you get in Calvin, what you get in Anselm. Here is the universality, an easy explanation for the universal need for the death of Christ. But, of course, what you're missing then is any sort of interaction with humanity. It is an exchange that takes place purely in the mind, God's mind or the human mind, that he's going to equate those two things. He brings together the necessity of logic, the necessity of law, as a result of the self-necessity that grounds his theology in the monologion. But each of these is really about power, the power of ipseity, the will, the power of rationality, are each in their turn subject to an ultimate or overriding power, which is simply another name for law. So the will is the foundation of the system or that place where the system, we might say, is self-productive or self-positing. The will contains the power of self-remembrance or self-production. It is the place of ethics. It's the place of sin and salvation. The whole thing's taking in place in human interiority. This pause here for a minute. Why the necessity of the incarnation 
If the death of Christ is accomplishing something that is in and of itself addressed to a universal, rational, disincarnate problem, the will then is simply another name for being or the power to be as if human being flows out of this interior power. And of course, power is its own authority or that place where one determined to be in my understanding, this is the human project that we would establish our own being. I think Anselm is just tying that project, the rational project, the philosophical project, the ethical project, into the death of Christ. The particular symbolic identity of a self-positing system, whether it is a king or a constitution, it does not escape the fact that the system gets up and running through a kind of tautologous self-authorization. The law is the law. I am me. Think here, I am that I am. God can say this. But when Satan says, I am, and there is no other in the voice of the king of Tyre, we're dealing with the ultimate deception. And of course, I think this is the deception that has been foisted upon the human race that we would imagine that being flows out of ourselves. I think that Anselm is not exposing this deception, but his system is one that ties into it. Anselm has insight into the divine necessity, again, not because he is appealing to revelation, but because he is explaining necessity itself. He has to describe a system that is necessary. And so he never abandons the conclusions of the monologion. In Why God Became Man, Curtis Homo, it reads differently, and maybe it's a very different time in Anselm's life, but he's still dealing with necessity. Law is simply will or necessity writ large. The law is law draws its power from this same forceful enunciation. God is that which what no greater can be thought in the ontological argument. So to understand the logic of the work of Christ, apart from Scripture, he makes it clear that power and necessity and will are substantive to the economy. He's giving us a substance to man that he presumes then this reason, this law, this will is in itself a kind of absolute thing. So we need not go outside of the self, just as he describes in the ontological argument, go into your room, close the door, close the door of your mind. And in his economy of salvation, it is a closed mind. It is a closed realm in which the entire economy works out. The gap in the will, interrupting self-sameness, when it is translated into an exchange economy, you know, what are we talking about, a gap in the will? Well, he's really talking about life itself. Maybe there's an infinite variety of symbols that serve to represent being, you know, money, labor, position. But what they all ultimately rest upon is life, and maybe, to be more specific, life-taking. That is, their death, their death dealing. Each particular cultural system may have its own economy of exchange in which being is reified, it's put on the market, but the ultimate standard has to do with the taking of life. And certainly in Anselm's day, honor was the medium of exchange. It was a system in which the way that you defended your honor was through taking life. So in Why God Became Man, 
when he comes down to discussing the economy of redemption, honor is directly identified. That's the currency that is being circulated. Now, I have heard of systems, you know, that we often get a contrast between Anselm and Calvin. I think that such a harsh contrast or difference may be mistaken once you get into the details of what Anselm's doing. He openly declares that it is a system of violent exchange. You know, penal substitution is clearly all about violence. But violence and punishment are here in Anselm too. He refers to sinning as violently taking from God what was his, and of the implied recourse on the part of God is to violently take it back. The only way the logic of Christ's death is going to be worked out logically, you don't question the violence, you don't question the honor system. That Think of the someone's offended honor, what do you do? Well, you challenge them to a sword fight or something, and his, the society at that time was quite violent. But So you don't question that. You don't question the law or systems of honor as you have it. You simply apply the violence inherent to the logic of the system. Christ did not die to disrupt the system, but to keep it in place. And Christ has simply restored the balance of the economy. And so Anselm felt neither the injustice inherent to his own cultural order, nor did he really think about the words of Christ in terms of such a system. I mean, the New Testament, turning the other cheek, nonviolence. He could freely use the cultural and legal order of his day, but he used it only to illustrate what he took to be the real system interior to human will. And so he, yeah, he's appealing to the medieval economy as a metaphor, but he's not talking about a system that has an objective existence necessarily apart from the individual. Rather, the entire system, with its violence, exists interior to the will. And, uh, and again, I think we need to broaden our understanding of what we mean by violence. Certainly Anselm is. That what he means, we've violently taken something from God. He means something, not an objective event, but something interior to man. The sole honor, the complete honor which we owe to God is a debt incurred and paid within the will. And so the will of a rational creature is obliged to be subject to God by its willing of rectitude, he says, or its willing of righteousness. And this rectitude is a presence in the will that can only be defined as the will rightly willing itself. So the honor that is owed to God and the debt that is incurred exists in the depths of human interiority or subjectivity. And ultimately it would seem to be the supposed deep interiority or subjectivity that protects the system from the kind of scrutiny that would disrupt it. If the system were posed in terms of an outward exchange of violence, well, clearly this would fall short of the most basic standard that Christ established. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's what Anselm is describing, is precisely a system of exchange on the order of an Old Testament system of law. But the difference is he does not 
place it in some sort of objective reality, but in a subjective world. Christ says, do not resist an evil person. That is, that the way that God portrays our interaction with the world of violence is not to submit to it, not succumb to it, not to imagine that it's legitimate, but in fact to undermine it and its legitimacy. So this nonviolence does not rest upon another layer of violence. That's the way we often think. Well, we'll turn our cheek now and God will extract the pound of flesh later. But Christ relates the entire chapter of nonviolence, you know, his understanding of nonviolence, back to an Im imitation of God, love of the enemy. It's not a tactical delay built upon or hoping for a future violence. It is to imitate the love of God and to strive for his perfection. Christ says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you do that? Not through violence, not through a system of exchange of honor, but in and through love, which is not built upon this violence. And so Christ's teaching and life were not aimed at maintaining the balance to the law, which certainly is violent. It's not built upon getting payback time. That's a misunderstanding, I think, entirely. But Anselm, though, is going to force us, and Calvin will build upon in his doctrine of penal substitution. Throughout the book, Curtis Homo, Anselm is assuming that a law of reciprocity is in place and that the death of Christ must be understood in terms of meeting this law. And so he raises the question, could God forgive sin out of mercy alone? And Boso has no problem with this until Anselm draws out the logic for him. He says, to forgive sin in this way is nothing other than to refrain from inflicting punishment. And if no satisfaction is given, the way to regulate sin correctly is none other than punish it. If therefore it is not punished, it is forgiven without its having been regulated. So here in, in the midst of Curtis Homo certainly is the idea of punishment. So he needs punishment. Uh, it's punishment that stands behind his idea of honor. Boso subsequently points out that it seems odd to say that God is in no way willing to forgive an injury to himself. And of course, that's precisely what Anselm is saying. Anselm appeals to the notion of God's dignity. That is, that God can't forgive. That's what he's saying. God can't forgive without extracting his pound of flesh. It is not fitting, he says, for God to do anything in an unjust and unregulated manner. God himself is subject to law. It does not belong to his freedom or benevolence or will to release unpunished a sinner who has not repaid to God what he has taken away from him. Now, Anselm accomplishes something here that maybe Calvin in some way ignores, and that is that he sees this debt as residing within each of us in our will. Anselm's explanation here, as unchristian as I think this is, well, this satisfies Boso. And Anselm then proceeds to build on this idea in chapter 13 of Curtis Homo to say that the most intolerable thing in the universe would be that a creature should take away honor from the Creator and not repay what he takes away. That is, we have to balance the economy. There is no 
outright forgiveness in this economy. There is no canceling of debt, but in fact the debt must be paid. He says this would be the supreme injustice as it is God who is the supreme justice and nothing is more justly preserved than God's honor. There's not the possibility of forgiveness unless the honor that has been stolen from God is repaid. Then this can happen either through punishment or if someone should offer to repay it in the sinner's behalf. I think there's only a very slight difference here with penal substitution. Bosa wants to know how punishment could restore God's honor. A good question. And Anselm explains that human will must be brought into subjection to God, and God brings him into submission to himself against his will by subjecting him to torment, and in this way shows that he is Lord. To speak of Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction as nonviolent misses the underlying violence that is required in the whole system. Anselm speaks of this forced submission as God's seizing property that is rightly his. He explains that it is not exactly like money changing hands. And this is an interesting metaphor here because money, power, law, will, all are, as he says, interlocking. But God nevertheless utilizes for his own honor what he takes away through the fact of his taking it away. For by seizing the sinner and his belongings, he affirms that they are subject to himself. So it is a property seizure proving that God is the rightful owner. And this is connected to the problem that is raised in chapter 16, which Anselm, he complains is a digression. But, and I think we need to go to this. Many people often skip over this. Anselm needs this section. The, he says that it, this explanation provides an insight as to the strict mathematical necessity. It is agreed that it was God's plan to make up for the number of angels who had fallen by drawing upon the human race which he created sinless. He needs this definitive number, a limited number, to work out what he calls divine necessity. Boso says he would like to hear the reason behind this, and Anselm reluctantly takes up, you know, as if this is uh, kind of not part of his main argument. And what I would say, well, no, actually, this is the key to his argument. I think what is important for our purpose is to see in both this discussion and the one preceding an open discussion of a system of exchange and economy, which at this point takes on a clear numerical kind of value. Anselm himself relates it to money. We can relate it to a definitive number. It doesn't matter what the number is. It's just the idea that we're dealing in numbers and mathematics now. The absolute perfect number thought to inhabit the heavenly city and the absolute rationality of the argument throughout his understanding both presume a closed system in which there's only so much being, there's only so much space in heaven to go around. And so the logic that makes possible a discussion of the humans for angels' trade is at work in estimating the degree of honor, how much honor has been stolen from God. What is the amount of debt that is owed? 
Anselm presumes that all these can be calculated or measured. The limited space and perfect number of heaven points to the closed and limited system that gives the rational exercise he is carrying out traction. There's a law or logic of exchange at work that presumes God himself is hedged in by the math or logic of the system. It is a zero-sum game. There's only so much stuff to go around. He says that, for example, the humans that will be taken up into the heavenly city must not only replace fallen angels, but they must be of the same character as the fallen angels. He says it's not fitting then for God to receive into heaven for the replacement of the fallen angels a human sinner who has not paid recompense. For truth does not allow him to be raised up to equality with the blessed ones. So the ultimate problem with the sort of this sort of zero-sum economy that he is describing is the desire which produces and is substantiated by it. There is only so much salvation or being or heavenly space to go around, and this means that the salvation or being or heavenly space that one possesses is in direct proportion to what is dispossessed from another, the fallen angels. So Anselm's entire system is centered on a personality that is lacking in will or being, and the point of the system is to integrate one more fully into obtaining it, which this reading takes to be an integration, what I would say, into the sin system itself. And this is not to say that sin functions according to a conscious system. Rather, it is simply to say that unconscious desire, and I think that's what Anselm was actually doing, is tracing out desire, that desire follows the sort of economy of exchange that Anselm is de describing. You know, envy, for example, can only arise in a zero-sum context in which the being that the other is thought to possess is somehow felt to diminish one's own being, a system that builds on a limited whole and perfect number would seem to reflect and reinforce the sort of law-bound structures within which sin can flourish, envy, rivalry, jealousy. But Anselm does not aim to expose or replace this system but only to meet and intensify its demands. It amounts to an intensification of desire, even in Anselm's own description. For you do not deserve something which you do not love and yearn for in a way proportional to its importance, he says. What is owed is a proportional yearning, a proportional desire. But of course, this, if this yearning is misplaced, as I believe in my reading it is, then this could just as well lead to and be a description of the intensification of all those negative emotions, envy, rivalry, jealousy, the laws of the you know, unspirit, that thrive off a zero-sum game. In such a system, life is the ultimate marker of being, and the taking of life, murder, violence, is the means of exchange. And that's precisely what he has in the death of Christ. And that's the logic he's building toward in the need for the death of Christ. It's the logic of those who killed him. God is in one accord with Christ's executioners. 
He does not refuse or resist the violence, but is in fact the ultimate perpetrator and the one who reinforces or, re or generates its structure. And so Anselm's logic of atonement, his ontological logic are one and the same in the reinforcement of the idea of a limited whole, a limited being, which incorporates God then as part of Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.